Hello, everyone. This is Jen Fry, Visioning Council Member for the Organization of Nature Evolutionaries, or ONE. I want to welcome you to today's talk entitled, Life is Made of Community, Lesson from Trees in Cities and Forests, with David Haskell. Through our teleseminar series, we connect with leading nature evolutionaries to encourage and support our vision of a future where people and nature are co-creative partners and all life has the right to thrive. This call is being recorded and will be available on our website, natureevolutionaries.com. We believe there should be time for questions later on, and if you have any questions, you can press star five, which will raise your hand and allow me to call on you. And I will remind you of that later, but just so you know, star five. So it's my great pleasure to introduce you to today's uh, host today, or today's speaker today, David Haskell. David has spent several years listening to the stories of trees in forests, cities, and coasts. At each, he explored the many interconnections that give us all life. These connections exist at levels from cells to ecology to human culture. In the lives of trees, we see that living beings are made not from cells, but from networked relationships. Trees, therefore, tell us both about the fascinating stories of particular places and about the processes that unite all of life on the planet. David Haskell's work integrates scientific, literary, and contemplative studies of the natural world. His book, The Forest Unseen, was finalist for the 2013 Pulitzer Prize in nonfiction and recipient of numerous honors, including the National Academy's Best Book Award for 2013. The book has been translated into 10 languages. Haskell's second book, The Songs of Trees, examines biological networks through the lives of a dozen trees around the world. The book was winner of the 2018 John Burroughs Medal, named one of the best science books of 2017 by NPR Science Friday selected as favorite science books of 2017 by Brain Pickings, and in the 10 Best Environment, Climate Science, and Conservation Books of 2017 at Forbes.com, and is one of my favorite books. Haskell received his BA from the University of Oxford and PhD from Cornell University. He is Professor of Biology and Environmental Studies at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee and is a fellow of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation. He serves on the boards and advisory committees of local and national land conservation groups. Haskell's classes have received national attention for the innovative ways they combine action in the community with contemplative practice. In 2009, the Carnegie and Case Foundations named him Professor of the Year for Tennessee. In addition to his books, he has published scientific papers, essays, poems, and op-eds. So it really is with my great pleasure that I welcome you, David. Thank you, Jen. It's a delight to, to be with you. Uh, thank you for the honor of inviting me and uh, opening this, this door to, to telling a few stories of the trees. My hope is that the uh, trees stories will emerge with some, uh, some of these stories I think are quite vivid and, and they're mostly stories about how people and, and trees are interconnected. What I thought, um, I'd invite us all into first is just half a minute of silence, 
we gathered together here through the medium of electronic communication, of course, each sitting on our own uh, particular places. Um, so I'm sitting on the uh, on the front range of Colorado right now. It's a sunny day after a very snowy week. Uh, the temperature is rising, and I know that there are listeners uh, all around the world now tuning in at various times of day, various points of the rhythms of the sun and uh, day and night in different parts of the world, different parts of the United States, and different ecological rhythms as well. So, so we're united together through these through these thrumming electrons, and it would be nice to hold that space just in silence to acknowledge that uh, that community and interconnection for 30 seconds. So we'll take a, a few moments of silence, and then I'll, I'll call us back out. Thank you. So today I'm going to talk about how human well-being and the lives of forests and trees trees are intertwined together, how they're interconnected. This bond between people and trees allows us to thrive. It allows we humans to thrive, but it also allows the trees themselves to thrive often when the, the relationship is healthy. Sometimes in, in, in those connections are, are quite hidden. So occasionally they're obvious, but often they're, they're below the surface. But before we get into the particular stories of trees, I want to briefly mention my method for studying trees and writing about these connections between people and trees and forests. My method draws on the practices of the contemplative traditions of meditation or silent prayer. And I apply that in the context of ecological study, biological study. So for my first book, I wandered through the forest until I found a rock that was flat enough for me to sit on with a reasonable degree of comfort for a year. And the square meter in front of that, about the size of a small dining room table, that area became what I called the forest mandala, an area that I returned to again and again through that year over hundreds of hours to just sit down and pay attention, open my senses to the place, try to discover some of the species, some of the ecological interactions that were happening there through my sight, my hearing, my touch and smell and so forth. So the act of meditation is returning again and again to the same place without expectation, without trying to control what I'm going to see there on that particular day, being open through my senses to the particular realities of that place in that time. For the second book, The Songs of Trees, I, I used the same practice but applied it to and with particular trees in different parts of the world, trees that on the surface at least seem very different. A tree in the Amazon rainforest, another in Manhattan, another in Jerusalem. And again and again, over, over several years, returning to each tree dozens of times to sit and listen, to listen to the sounds in the tree, the, the sounds of wind. Every tree has its own voice in the wind. Every tree 
evokes different sounds when the rains come and when snow falls into its leaves or branches or needles. And those sounds reveal a lot about the hidden architecture of the tree. There are insects in and on the tree. There are birds. There are people talking around the tree. All of these are the sounds of the trees, and they intersect and interact and form the song. So through repeated acts of attention to particular trees, I tried to discern each tree's story. And then I talked to people who knew about the tree, whose, whose lives were particularly connected to each tree. I talked to people directly in one-to-one in -one conversation, but also talked through the, the means of reading the literature, what have botanists and archeologists discovered about this particular place and this particular species, trying to hear some of those stories through human conversation. So today I'm going to give a few examples, some from quite far away from where I'm, I'm located now, and then circle back uh, into the, to the present moment. We'll go to the, to the Middle East, to Northern Europe, South America, New York City, and then, and then to, the, uh, to the southern part of the United States in an old growth forest. And we will start this exploration of tree-human connections in Jerusalem and the hills of the Eastern Mediterranean. There, olive trees have a very obvious human presence in the landscape, in agriculture, and, and this you may have seen this on the news, in human conflict. Multiple sides on the many conflicts that, that rage in, in that part of the world uh, have either used olive trees as, as political symbols and of symbols of conflict and of direct actions of conflict, cutting down people's olive trees and then replanting them using the olive as a way of expressing ownership of land and a people's connection to the land. The cuisine of the region, of course, is, is very much uh, dependent on and built on olive oil and traveling around the region, olive trees are part give part of the sense of place uh, they form one of the dominant forms of vegetation particularly in the in the hilly areas in the in those part in that part of the middle east so in the, the very eastern part of the mediterranean but the tree's significance is, is much older than what we can see in the present day if we dig into lake beds for example into the sea of galilee or into the dead sea we can dig into the mud deposits and time travel back thousands of years. What do I mean by that? Well, on the bottom of the Dead Sea are layers of mud. And those mud layers of mud have fallen year by year, each layer building onto the layer of, that was fallen in the year before. And so the superficial layers of mud are from just the last decade or two. You go down a few inches, you're back 100 years. You go down several feet uh, and you get back into thousands of years ago. And in that mud are contained pollen grains because the pollen, uh, particularly from trees that are wind pollinated, the pollen of trees that grow around the Dead Sea gets blown onto the Dead Sea and then it falls to the bottom and settles. So by drilling down through these layers of mud and, and pulling out a core, almost like a, a column of mud, we can put those pieces of mud under the microscope and see what trees were growing in that particular time. 
And this record goes all the way back to the last ice age, so more than 10,000 years ago. And what this pollen record shows is that human civilization and the presence of olive trees are deeply linked. When olive trees are thriving, people are thriving as well. There are great civilizations with art and literature, founding religions and so forth. But when the olives disappear, so to do the people. So there's a very tight connection and correlation between the vitality of the human community and the vitality of the olive trees in the region. Why is this? Well, partly it's because olive trees make possible human life in the region. And then we humans in return make the possible or ease the life for the olive trees. So there's a reciprocity, a reciprocal, mutually beneficial relationship there. For humans, the olive oil is particularly important because it's so calorie dense. One little bowl of olive oil contains as many calories as the same volume of red meat. And the, the olive tree can grow where rainfall is very sparse, where few other plants can thrive. And so when people figured out that this particular tree was going to give them life, they then entered into a relationship with it and domesticated the trees. And about 8,000 years ago, in the pollen record, we see a sudden spike in olive pollen. That's because people had figured out how to, to tend these trees, to bring them into orchards. And human civilizations also expand at that time. Then our role in the relationship is human care of trees allows the trees to thrive. We water them when they're young. We clear away some of the competition. We provide some irrigation during the, uh, during the particularly during droughts. We prune them, keep fire away from the, from the mountainsides where the, where the olives are growing. And now every olive tree in the Mediterranean has the genetic signature of some of domestication. So the lives of people and olives in this region are deeply interconnected one to another. Every human culture and nation in the region is partly built on the, on the fruits of the olive tree. Now, occasionally that break is that link is broken. And how does that happen? Well, two things will break the link between people and olive trees in this region. One is deep and extended drought. A short drought won't do it because people have figured out how to irrigate the trees and the trees are very resilient in dry conditions. But a drought that lasts for decades, even the best irrigation system can't cope with, and therefore the trees die out from the landscape and human civilizations collapse. The end of the Bronze Age is, is one example of this. The other thing that will break this connection is war. Even in times of good rainfall, when everything else is going well, when there are there's extensive war in the region, of course, that affects human societies and, and in some ways, and in some cases, causes human societies to decline quite abruptly. But as those societies decline, they can no longer take care of the olive trees. And so the olives too start to disappear. And so both drought and war are the, uh, the enemies of this, in, of this connection between trees and olives. So it's no surprising then that olive trees and olive oil is central 
to the symbology, the language of the religions in the region, not just as metaphors for God, but as the literal source of food and life. In Islam, the light of an olive lamp is the symbol of God. In Christianity, the Christ means the anointed one, and the anointed one is anointed with olive oil. In Judaism, the miracle of the oil lamp in the temple is at the center of the festival of light, of life's uh, Hanukkah, the festival of light of the olive oil burning. And so the olive now uh, we encounter as metaphor in the scripture, but also as the direct source of sustenance uh, for our bodies in the land. And this dependence between people and trees is not unique to this particular semi-arid climate in the Eastern Mediterranean where olives and people have been so deeply interconnected over millennia now. The same dependence is present in other parts of the world. One of the trees that I studied for the Songs of Trees is a, is a hazelnut tree. And it turns out that after the last ice age, as the ice glaciers retreated northward and swept across northern Europe, melted away and left this barren landscape, post-glacial landscape, very tough place for most creatures to make a living. The first trees to colonize that landscape were hazelnuts. And those hazels came with people. So there's a very tight correlation between the appearance of the first hazelnut trees on the landscape and the appearance of the first people. And in fact, if you look at the archeological excavations of the Mesolithic campfires and villages of, of people in, in this region, every single piece of charcoal from all of the campfires and the hearths is hazel wood has burned. And you can tell that by putting it under the microscope and seeing the characteristic pattern of rings in the wood in, that are left in the charcoal. People were heating, fueling their, their culture only by burning hazelnut trees. And you may know that as you, as you cut a hazelnut, it will grow back very quickly. So they're coppiced. You cut it once, within a couple of years, the tree will grow back. You can cut it again, it will grow back more and more bushy each time, but providing lots of firewood. But firewood wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was food. This is what archaeologists call the age of hazelnuts. The floor of this village in, in every building in the village is made almost entirely of broken up hazelnuts. And those hazelnuts are still there, buried beneath the ground in these, in these old villages in the form of, of charred remains that archaeologists can now dig up and, and study. So the, the forests of Northern Europe just like the olive groves of the Mediterranean were formed by humans in relationship with trees. And it's possible that people brought the hazelnuts. They may have accelerated the spread of hazelnuts northward. The hazelnut tree arrived on the post-glacial landscape long before any other trees did, hundreds of years before uh, some other trees. And it might just be that people, perhaps with the help of some of the jays, the birds, brought the nuts with them and, and seeded the landscape. Hazel has got lots of protein, it's got lots of oil, and it, the hazelnuts from the trees were the calorific foundation for those early societies 
So the early societies in Northern Europe after the last ice age were built on hazelnuts, they're built on the, an interaction and a dependence on trees. The trees themselves were dependent on a below ground interaction with fungi. Hazelnuts are champions at joining their roots to the fungal strands of, um, uh, of mushrooms and, and other creatures that help the tree to survive in very acidic, very cold, boggy soils. The tree rewards its below ground fungal partners by giving sugars, other organic molecules. The fungus helps by protecting the roots from infection and also by providing some minerals and in some case water to the to the above ground parts of the tree. So there's a deep reciprocity between the fungus in the soil and the hazelnut trees. And then the hazelnut trees are then in reciprocal relationship with people. So in some ways it's a three-way interaction between soil, fungi, hazelnut trees, and people that allowed the first human colonization of, of Northern Europe after the Ice Age. And this ability of hazelnut to connect with other beings and particularly with fungi is still used when people cultivate truffles commercially. And the truffle, of course, is a kind of fungus. Hazelnut is a wonderful tree to cultivate truffles on. They call them nurse trees because the above ground part of the hazelnut provides so much material and sustenance for the below ground truffle growing fungus. Uh, so there's a, there's a culinary connection to this day. Now, this deep reciprocity and connection between people and trees is not only present in managed orchards, um, say managed olive oil orchards or in hazel groves. It's also present in the largest expanses of forest left in the world and the heart of cities. So the reciprocity, the, the connection between people and trees extends into multiple different habitats. And let me share a couple more examples uh, to, to flesh that out. So the next place we'll, we'll, we'll visit after Jerusalem and, and post-glacial Northern Europe is the Amazon rainforest. One of the trees that has taught me the most is the uh, sabo tree. And some of you are familiar to the, with this from, from previous guests here. The sabo tree is a, is a tree that's at the center of the livelihood and also of the sense of the sacred and of meaning of, of many cultures all around the tropics. It's a, it's a tree that has a, a distribution that, that expands all around the world wherever tropical conditions prevail. The, the sabo tree that I have studied is in the Amazon. It's in the Western Amazon, so in the very Eastern part of Ecuador. This tree takes, it's about 20 paces, human paces to go around its base. So it's an enormous great tree and it towers above the other trees in the rainforest. The tree is a hub of life. There are, sitting up in its canopy, uh, over a few weeks, one could count hundreds of species as birds, as many birds coming into and out of the foliage of one tree in the Amazon as exist in all of North America. 
And around that tree, there are hundreds of other plants. And in fact, it's not just around the tree, but on the tree. When you climb up into the crown of a sabo tree, you see that every branch is utterly covered with other plants. So in the, in the center of the crown, there's even a little wetland there with frogs living in it and fig trees growing out, big fig tree with a, a trunk about as thick as my torso growing on top of the sabo tree. On the drier, hotter branches that are more exposed to the sun, there are little succ succulents and drought-resistant plants and bromeliads and so forth. So the tree is an incredible hub of life, and it's also the source for much food and medicine for people who live in this forest. The tree is also a way of finding your way through the forest for some of the people who live in this part of the Amazon, in particular, some of the members of the Warani culture that I met told me that if they got lost in the forest, they would find a sabo tree and either climb up it to look around because you can see over everything or just bang your fists on the big buttress roots all around the tree. What does that do? Well, it makes the buttress root thump like a big subwoofer. You're using an enormous wooden resonator to send these low frequency signals through the forest. Your companions will hear this and know that you are communicating some, some news of the, to them and through the patterns and, and the rhythms of the thumps can interpret whether you're lost or you're signaling that you've, you've uh, engaged in some conflict with some neighbors or that you've found a, a rich source of food. So. No wonder then that the sabo tree is the, is the tree of life in the creation story of these peoples. Now, the forest in this region uh, is facing threats from resource extraction, and in particular from uh, road building to extract oil from the forest. And the this part of the Amazon sits on top of some very rich deposits of fossil fuels, and even in the protected areas, there are proposals to build roads and extract the oil. Of course, oil drilling comes with a whole set of uh, potential dangers, mostly through oil spills. And there are, in this part of the Amazon, there are some companies that have a, a rather poor track record, particularly from a few decades ago, of poisoning large parts of the forest with oil spills. But also, just the act of building a road means that colonists can come out from come in from elsewhere, hunt out most of the native animals, drive out the indigenous peoples, and completely change the nature of the forest, turn it more into a, an agricultural savanna area. So how have the peoples of the Amazon been encountering this and resisting some of the incursions of, of roads in, into their territories? Well, partly it is by taking their understanding of the sabo tree, of the life of the forest and turning that into political action. And in fact, getting it written into the constitution of the nation of Ecuador. So how does that work? Well, the people who live in, within, and in relationship with the forest understand that life emerges from relationship through reciprocal interaction, mutualistic interaction between humans and other beings. That is their understanding of how life works, and it's an understanding that is completely congruent with the understandings of, of modern scientific uh, studies of the forest. Of course, people who've lived there for thousands of years have a deeper understanding than ecologists who've just studied for a, 
few years or, or at best a few decades. So the understanding is that the forest is built on cooperative, mutually life-giving interaction. Some activists then took this understanding to the capital and had that woven into the language of the law to give rights to living rivers and to forests and to the peoples of the Amazon. So this is one of the few examples where this reciprocity between people and trees, people and forests has actually worked its way into human constitutional law. How that story will play out, whether that will be sufficient to protect the forests of the Amazon, we do not know. Uh, but certainly the, the mind of the forest, if you like, the way that the forest works, its dynamics, its rhythms has found its way more deeply into the legal systems in, in Ecuador uh, than it has in, in, uh, in most other countries, especially uh, my own country here in the, in the United States, where um, an ecological understanding of life has uh, no presence whatsoever in the, in the Constitution. These deep connections between people and trees are also present in the heart of the city. We often think of cities as places devoid of nature, as places where the connections, ecological connections are broken and fragmented. And within North American environmental thought, there's often a very deep hostility towards cities, regarding them as, as places that are diseased or dwarfed or broken or entirely unsustainable. And this is uh, deeply embedded in the writings, for example, of uh, John Muir and Jefferson and some of the other people who, who were involved early on in, in thinking about nature in relation to people in, in North America. However, there's another view, and that is that in the present moment, we need cities. Cities take up just 3% of the land and yet house 50% of the people. If all the people from the city were to leave and everyone have their own Thorovian five acres, uh, that would be even less sustainable than the system we have now. And so there's been a rethinking in, in ecological world, and particularly in ecological science, of the role, the significance, the value of cities regarding them not as wastelands that need to be hastily passed through on our way to an imagined wilderness, but instead places where human lives can thrive and in fact human lives need to thrive in, in relation with others. So my own study of this, particularly for the Songs of Trees, focused on uh, several trees in, in different uh, parts of the world. One is a bonsai tree that was in uh, Hiroshima, in Japan and now lives in Washington, DC. Another is a tiny little cottonwood tree growing out of the side, the crack in the sidewalk in the, in the city of Denver in Colorado. And the one that I'll talk about briefly now is a tree on a street corner in Manhattan. And this tree is up on the Upper West Side. It's on 86th and Broadway. It's a pear tree, it's quite a modest, uh, doesn't have a, a great dramatic story the way some of the trees in New York do that the survivors of attacks or date back uh, hundreds of years and so forth. This is a tree that's probably about 40 or 50 years old. It sits right next to a newsstand. There's a subway stop there. There's traffic going past all the time. And most people are not stopping to wonder at this tree. They're passing by and the tree slips out of their consciousness. 
pretty quickly. But this tree is deeply connected to the people in that neighborhood. And that connection takes many forms. Perhaps the most obvious form in the summertime is that the tree is shading the street. And so when I rest my hand on the sidewalk in July, it's 20 degrees cooler under that tree than a few steps away where the sun is beating down without any shade on the, on the sidewalk. Come back at midnight and this, the difference persists. Under the tree, the sidewalk is cooler because all that heat that it got absorbed into the roadway, into the unshaded part of the sidewalk is still held in in that concrete, in that asphalt, and is re-emitting back at night. So at 1 a.m., I rest my hand on the sidewalk and the unshaded sidewalk, and it is hot. It's like someone has put it, left the electric radiator on. Whereas under the tree, things are much cooler. Temperature is cooler. It's pleasant. And for people living in the neighborhood, of course, keeping the temperature down, especially in summer, is a very important part of the quality of life. And has a significant uh, environmental and financial benefit to keeping things cool. In New York, the latest calculations suggest that it's at least $10 million a year in New York City are saved through eliminated air conditioning costs because trees are present. Another way of saying that is without the trees in New York City, air conditioning costs would go up by $10 million because the city would be that much hotter. So that's a significant savings of, of money. It increases the quality of life for people in, the, in that neighborhood. But it also means that coal is not being burned upstream. Uh, nuclear and hydro aren't being activated in order to provide that electricity to power the air conditioning units. And so there's a downstream benefit as well for people who, who live near power plants and, and so forth. So trees uh, mediate the extremes in environment in, in the city, they also slow the flow of storm water. So when there's a big rainstorm comes, the tree holds on to a lot of that water. It's like a standing sponge. Every single twig and branch holds on, adheres to some of that water and slows its flow down to the, to the drains. Without trees, every time it rains, that storm water flow would overwhelm the sewage treatment plant resulting in a release of raw sewage into the rivers. That still happens on big rainfalls, but the extent of the overflow is reduced because of the presence of trees in the cities. Put another way, if the trees were eliminated, there would be a lot more storm water flowing into the rivers, carrying raw sewage with it, because those storm events would overwhelm the sewage treatment plants. So there's a benefit for the for temperature, for stormwater flow. There's a direct benefit also for our lungs. When I wipe my hand across any windowsill in the neighborhood, you I come away with with a with a black dust on my fingertips. That dust comes from the engines of the diesel trucks and and buses that go up and down the streets, and also from the furnaces that are down below in the basements of many of these buildings, heating the building through the wintertime. So all that particulate pollution, that air pollution, is wafting around the streets and getting onto windowsills, of course, but also into our lungs. Every time we breathe in, we inhale some of that particulate pollution. 
How are trees involved in this? Well, the tree cleans the air of that particulate pollution. It's a big soot catcher. Every twig is an incredibly ornate and complicated three-dimensional structure pointing up into the air. Every detail of the bark, every branch, all of the tree acts, even in the wintertime when there aren't any leaves, acts to catch soot. The soot hits the twig and it sticks to it. And then another soot particle sticks to that. And bit by bit, the soot accumulates on the tree. And then when it rains, the soot washes back down uh, into the sewage treatment. So the tree is quite literally filtering and cleaning the air. And so every breath we take in the city, we're connected in the most intimate way possible to trees. And that intimate way is through the wet, soft lining of the interior of our lungs benefit from the presence of, of trees. So this connection promotes human health in many ways. And nowadays in, in New York City, the tree plantings on uh, when the city is deciding where to plant its, its new trees, they'll take a map of where people have very poor lung health where there are a lot of cases of people having to go to hospital because of asthma. Then they'll take a map of where there are not many trees present in the city. And where those two maps overlap, you have a place with very poor lung health and no trees. The city will go in and plant up the whole block with trees to revegetate, to bring some urban forest canopy into that neighborhood to benefit people's health. Now we gain lots of benefits but this is a reciprocal relationship. The tree is also benefiting. How so? Partly because we planted it there, but also because humans become the caretakers of the tree in the city in the way that say out in the forest, it's the squirrels and the fungi and the wildflowers and the soil bacteria. Those are all the caretakers, the, the symbionts, if you like, that live in relationship with the tree and promote the tree's health. In the city, that ecological community is much, much simplified and people take on a much larger role. And there's some very good data on this. It turns out that if municipal workers plant a tree on a city street and then come back a year later, 10 years later, and see if the tree is still there, did it survive? Well, the 10-year probability survival for that tree is about 60%. Depends on the species, but more or less 40% of the trees that are planted die. It's a tough place to grow as a tree in the, in the city. However, if you plant that tree involving people from the local community, say get some local kids in to help dig the hole, uh, assemble some people from the, the local community group or synagogue or church to come help plant the tree, and then put a tag on the tree saying, hello, everybody, I'm your new tree. Here's my species name. Please don't let your dog poop here. I'd appreciate it if you give me a little water if it's a very dry summer. That tree's probability of survival goes up to nearly 100% over 10 years. Why is that? It's not because we spent any more money on it. It's because we gave that tree personhood within the community of life. We raised it into awareness, into the human social network. 
So when people know the tree and have met it and have befriended it, if you like, that tree can then have a more vital life and in fact uh, can have life uh, undamaged and a much higher probability of, of surviving through those first years on the street. So this reciprocity between people and trees is present in the fields of Jerusalem. It's present up in, the, in Northern Europe with the hazel trees. It's present in the Amazon rainforest and in the, in the middle of, in the New York, in the middle of New York City. So we are deeply interconnected with these other beings in many ways and, and in many places. And in all these cases, where the tree's story ends and where ours begins is not clear. The line between the tree's story and our story is very, very blurry. So the individuality and the separation that we seem to see in the world, for example, you look at a tree, it seems like such a solitary individual. You look at a human standing alone, they seem so solitary and individualistic. In fact, that's an illusion that that tree's life exists only through relationship with other creatures, including humans. And for we humans, our lives exist only in relationship to other beings, trees included, but not only trees, of course, our, the microbes on our, in and on our body and the other species that we share our communities with are also very, very important. Even something is a breath of air. Every time you inhale, half of the oxygen in that inhale comes from trees and grasslands and the other half comes from plankton in, in the ocean. So the act of sucking oxygen from the air, in fact, is an is a act of deep interconnection with trees as well. So this tells us something very important about the nature of trees and indeed the nature of all life forms. And that is that we live through relationship. Interconnection is the fundamental unit of biology. And biology has at best told us a partial story because it's been very focused on the individual. We've defined life as a self-replicating process. We regard the fundamental unit of life as the self, the individual, the atom, either the individual gene, the individual organism, individual species. And those are useful ways of talking about the world in, in some ways, but they also deny some of the reality of the world is that what persists through time are relationships. What evolves through time are networks of interconnections. So interconnection and relationship are the fundamental unit in biology. And that reorganization of thought is happening at multiple levels of the science of biology from genetics through physiology to ecology. So participation and relationship is the nature of forests and trees. We understand this in our human language, even when we forget it. Uh, in our minds, our language tells us there's the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree under which Buddha received enlightenment, the Yule log, the north Idrasil, which connects the above and the ground below worlds, the, um, the everyday and, and the heavens. And even in the science lab, the evolutionary tree of life, our language recognizes that trees have important things to tell us. They're important symbols about the structure of life. And what trees are telling us now is that we live deeply interconnected and interwoven with, with forests and trees in cities, in orchards, and 
in forests. Trees are also, for we humans, they're direct cultural mediators, not just metaphors. In music, when you listen to a guitar, a piano, a violin, what are you hearing? You're hearing the artistry of the and skill of the, the musician. You're hearing the voice of the composer. You're also hearing the particularities of the tree that made that instrument. That wood grew in a particular way because of where it, what side of the mountain it grew on, how much rainfall it had. So when you hear music, you're hearing the music of the forest as well as the music of people. When you read a book, you're reading flattened sheets of cellulose that came from the forest. Human minds are connecting through the medium of literature, mediated through trees. And when we gather around the campfire and through the burning flame of wood, all that energy being released out of the wood, the human conversation turns away from the everyday and travels into the realm of the imagination as it has done for millennia. You, the campfire is in many ways the crucible in which human culture, human storytelling evolved. So right from the get-go, our species has been sustained by trees, but also the interconnections within our species are made possible because, because of trees. Now, as, as you're all aware, of course, those interconnections are, are threatened now, are being eroded. The challenges are many. We have changing rainfall and fire. Uh, we have highly unsustainable uh, logging and land clearing practices in some parts of the world, particularly now for palm oil and soybean clearing in, in tropical forests, removing the last rainforest. We have invasive diseases and competitors coming jumping from one continent to the other and wiping out entire tree species. But alongside all these biological and economic challenges, we also have the problem of human inattention. We now live surrounded by apps and other forms of software and hardware and devices that are deliberately constructed and designed to draw our attention away from these relationships that give us life and into other forms of interaction that can be monetized by other people. And there are good things that come through electronic devices and through, uh, through apps and, and so forth. However, when the balance gets out of whack and that's all we have in our lives, and in North America here, the average person is spending between six and seven hours of the day on a screen and very little time outside listening to trees, listening to the birds, talking to other people in, in, in the neighborhood. We, we've got a problem of inattention. So I close here with an invitation, and that invitation is to pick a tree near your, in your neighborhood or a little patch of forest, a tree on the street corner. And over the next few weeks, return to it, often without an agenda, just return and open your senses to it, touch its bark. Ask how the quality of light has shifted over the last week as the leaves have emerged. Listen to the sounds in and around the tree. Attend to what the tree is and talk to a few other people to learn some of its story perhaps. And then invite other people into this relationship. Tell other people the stories that you have discovered through attending to your new friend, the tree. 
And by inviting family and colleagues and friends into personal connection with your trees and the many ways that you interact with them, it, you will be giving them powerful memories and stories and a powerful statement through your lived experience of what matters. So a statement about values. So one of the most, the deepest ways we can affect the future is to invite others into the experience of life-giving relationships and life-giving relationships, including those with trees. And these are the relationships that unite us all in this time where we are told we should be divided one from another. We are not. We are united in this grand ecological community of life that sustains us all. So I will close there and invite any questions or comments. I'd I love to hear your uh, your reflections and will do my best to, to answer to answer any questions that you might have. Thank you. I believe you can dial through with star five for questions. I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is Jen. I thought I was unmuted. I was talking. So yes, please okay. press star five for questions. Um, and uh, and while we're waiting for hands to go up, um, I just want to say the the um, invitation that you gave about picking a tree and returning to this tree. So um, this past fall, we provided one provided a journey to Dominher, which is an eco society in Italy. And every citizen of Dominher has a tree that they um, they find, they are called to, and this is who mm -hmm. they have deep relationship with, and they are responsible for cultivating this relationship with this tree, um, ideally daily, occasionally it's weekly, um, mm -hmm. but it is... Wow, wonderful. Thing. Yeah. That's incredible. Yes, and there's many stories about, you know, how having this relationship has changed their lives. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And... You know, for many people, I think, even if we don't make that intention, what I've discovered in my work is that um, people who have a lot of traumas in their life and survive it intact, they ended up having a tree that they went to, um, mm -hmm, and that mm -hmm. tree really helped them. Um, so if anybody else is there and you'd like to ask David a question, oh, I see one. I knew you were going to have a question. Let me get to Pam, are you there? Um, yes, can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Okay, um, David, thank you. Uh, this is Pam uh, speaking to you, and thank you so, so much for for your incredible work in the world, and um, I, I love your book, The Songs of Trees. Um, oh, thank so anyway, you. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Um, your, your comment in the beginning about war and how that changes the landscape and changes relationships mm -hmm people's relationship with the trees. You know, this hit me like a ton of bricks. Just about a week ago, I saw, I don't know, somewhere, Facebook, somewhere, I saw a picture of a Palestinian elderly woman, an older older woman, and she um, was with an olive tree and she had her 
arms, you know, wrapped around as best she could around the, the base, the trunk of this tree. And she's just, she's just weeping and crying. And in the background is an Israeli soldier. And the story was basically about how the Israelis were cutting down all the olive trees. And it just, it just hit me so hard and, and brought me to tears. And so, so your comment is like, wow, you know, I think probably over the centuries, this has been a way to, um, to conquer is to cut down the trees and and take you know cut down the food the food that people eat and all of that and i just i just wow anyway so I, I i don't know if you have more to say about that but it's just it's just really hitting me hard so um yeah 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 that's you know it's a uh this has been going on for some time and, and some some of the uh particularly in in uh, israel and the west bank right now uh, some of the settlers have used cutting down of, of trees and separation of between people and, and trees as a way of controlling land and of, of uh, fighting uh, Palestinians in, in the conflict of, of the land there. The, the other issue is has been the separation wall, so the separation barrier that runs up around the um, runs around the West Bank and runs part, partly through Jerusalem as, as well. Uh, some of that was built in urban areas and open areas, but uh, but quite a bit of it went through old olive orchards. And to, so to put in this big separation barrier that in some places is a huge, really tall concrete wall. In other places, it's, it's more of a fence has involved cutting down a lot of trees. And if your trees happen to be in the way, then, um, you know, that was a significant economic loss. But the people who found their olive groves on the other side of the separation wall then couldn't get to them in order to uh, uh, in order to tend to them. And so even though technically you still own that land, your olive harvest goes down and down because you can't clean out the weeds, you can't prune, you can't give water, and you can't get enough people on the land to do the, to do the harvesting. It, th this has been very controversial. It's gotten a lot of uh, international attention. And in fact, during the olive harvest, there are international observers and volunteers who go and help uh, to, to to try and become more aware of this. There's a sort of biblical connection here is that in Deuteronomy though, there is uh, a commandment to, um, I think it's in Deuteronomy, it's to say that you cannot cut down the uh, fruiting, the olive trees of, of people that you have, uh, um, that you have conquered. So in other words, this, this notion of cutting trees as an act of war is, is expressly forbidden in some in some sacred uh, writings. Yeah. Wow. And in this in this um, story that I came across, what you know hit me really hard is that this old woman had had a relationship with this tree for like her whole life, and. Mm -hmm and she was about to lose it and it i mean it just made me want to cry it was just like yeah. it's like losing one of your 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 best friends your best old time friends and so for her in a way i mean you know of course you know conflict and war and all that affects you but what was really affecting her was the mm -hmm. loss of her relationship and yeah, that absolutely and, and go ahead it, well it's the same like 
you know, when the when the forest behind my house gets logged, it's like, which is it's not my land, it's somebody else's, and they bring in loggers, and then I go up there, and it's like these trees that I've had mm -hmm. relationships with are gone, and so, so I I'm just trying to wrap my head around this about okay. how do I, you know, how, I don't know how do I how do I carry on? I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know that there's a question here, but I'm just kind of like, wow, how do we? You know, same in the same as the Amazon. You know, they, the, all that. You know, so much being cut there. Anyway, I'm I'm just like, I'm just wondering about the repercussions of all of this. I I, I don't know, but I I feel like I want to in my in my own life and work. I, I really mm -hmm. want to try to help repair the damage being done. Sure. Um, I mean, it is a big. I mean, it's there. Are, you know, eight billion people on the planet and lots of conflicts, and, and no one of us can. Uh, be productively involved in finding solutions to any of them. And for example, in the situation in the Middle East, those conflicts have been going on for, for centuries and all many sides have, I wouldn't, wouldn't say all, but many sides have very legitimate <laughs> reasons to, to want to continue to be tied to the land. So the people who are putting up the Israeli separation barrier, for example, have lost family members to attacks coming from Palestinians. And so this is a situation is extremely complex and the people's relationship with the land gets caught in the middle there and gets broken. Mm -hmm. And the, the classic, I mean, there are many classic examples, but one of the, the contemporary examples in, in Syria, the part of the origin of the Syrian war uh, has been um, agricultural problems with irrigation. And once war started, people couldn't maintain the uh, irrigation of agriculture, and the, when people look with satellite images from space, the whole co color of the country has changed because agriculture has collapsed. Mm. In terms of what we can do in our individual lives, I think part of what we can do is learn the trees of our local community and what some of the issues are that we can engage with locally. And then on a more global level, say with tropical deforestation, some of the big drivers are soybean production and palm oil production. Uh, to put into the industrial food system. And so by finding foods that are not based on palm oil and on meat that has been fed soybeans, we can direct uh, a direct economy uh, through in, in a more fruitful and productive direction. In addition to those acts of individu that individual consumers can do, we also need political action. And depending on which state and which country we're in, there are different ways to engage there. Some of the deforestation that's happening now in the Amazon is directly a result of Trump's trade policies towards China, that because the Chinese are no longer importing as many soybeans from the US, they're importing them from South America. And so there's more clearing of Amazon rainforest to meet that demand. And Clearly, regime change in, in North America is a process that is going to involve a lot of us all doing our part uh, to show up and help and contribute to having a, a government that is making better decisions. So I think as individuals, we can do a certain amount. And then there's a, a very strong need for political action as well. So collective action to change some of the structural problems that no individual alone can, can address. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Jen, I'll turn thank it back you. to you. Okay. Thanks, Pam.
So um, for those who don't know, I just want to give a little bit of her story here. So that was Pam Montgomery, who actually is the, um, the one who had the vision for the creation of ONE, the Organization of Nature Evolutionaries, and is also one of our Visioning Council members. So while she says she wonders what she can do, um, she's muted so I can say this now, um, she's dedicated her whole life to helping people connect um, with the earth and with the plants. And I'm going to get teary-eyed about this because um, she really has changed um, many lives, myself included. And, um, and when you talk, David, about giving people those life-giving exchanges and experiences, that is Pam's whole path. And, um, and yet, you know, like all of us who are doing this, it just doesn't feel like it's enough. So we just keep going and just hope for the changes. Mm-hmm. So I just want to add a little bit there because... Um, Thank you. Pam does great work. Um, so, yeah, David, um, I mean, there's, <laughs> I, I know we could have a lot longer conversation. However, we're also um, basically out of time here. Um, mm-hmm. So is there anything else that you would like to address or say before I close? I would reiterate the, the invitation from the end and, and to say that, you know, I, I have my own particular perspectives on trees, and I've tried to share some of those in my in the books that I've written and some of the uh, online material that I've produced as well. But I think so much of what I've learned is that we all need to be doing this. We need to go out and make those relationships with other living beings and be open to what those beings and situations have to teach us. So, so I hope, um, I think I'll, I'll close with that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. And thank you um, so much really for that invitation and, um, that really is the heart of our work that we do here, too, is, yeah, we try to have those experiences and um, have people just connect deeply. And I agree. I feel like that is um, how we all get, how we all change. And also um, when we remember that connection that is so innate in all of us to nature, mm-hmm. that's, when that's when we are able to create change and shift our whole paradigm so that we can move back into this co-creative partnership. Mm-hmm. That we are wonderful. So, thank you, and um, thank, you. thank you for this. Thank you for this beautiful talk. I know I'm going to be thinking about it a lot, and um, so many points you brought up. And and for anybody who's on this call who hasn't read um, David's book, particularly this last one, The Songs of Trees, where he's highlighted some of the stories in there, but there's way more in this book, and it's just beautiful. So I really highly recommend it. Um, it does give you a sense of hope. Um, Oh, I do want to say one thing, David, that you said, I think it's really important to point out that trees benefit from humans as well. So often in the environmental movement, so often in this movement, people just want to keep people away. People are so awful and harmful and we ruin everything, but that's not, doesn't have to be the case. So I think that's a good point to highlight that trees benefit Mm -hmm. from humans. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that forward. Thank you. Um, so if you would like to learn more about David Haskell, please go to his website, which is D-G, as in David George, Haskell, H-A-S-K-E-L-L, dot com. And you can also find this link on our website and our Facebook page. This recording will be available on our website along with our previous teleseminars, including last month's very hopeful talk on the wisdom of the buffalo with Brooke Medicine Eagle. It was just beautiful. Um, And Mary Reynolds' teleseminar, Remembering Our Roles as Guardians of the Land. So while you are on our website, 
I ask that you please press that donate button. We are a small 501c3, which means your donations are tax deductible. And we rely heavily on your donations for, um, and support, really, to allow us to bring these teleseminars and do our other um, work in this world. And also, while you're on our website, please join our mailing list where you'll get a really um, incredible monthly newsletter and weekly Earth Rites that it just remind us of that connection to nature. And I invite you to join us next month on May 19th for our next um, part of this teleseminar series entitled Healing Connection to Nature Within and Without with Karen Sanders. So if you have not heard Karen speak before, she's an herbalist from California, and she's really phenomenal. Just She brings in so many wonderful stories, and it helps us to really connect deeply with nature. And I'm going to highlight, since you mentioned the Sabo tree, on July 21st, we will have a teleseminar with Ardell um, Ferrer from Vieques in Puerto Rico, and she is talking about the Sabo tree there, which recently um, was pretty wiped out by the last hurricane and is now coming back to life and how important the seba is for the culture on Vieque. So it's really wonderful. And one last thing to point out, um, as David mentioned a lot about the Amazon and the oil and the soybeans, if you are interested in learning more, we have many resources on our website about this. We have done a lot of work with Rocio Alarcón in Ecuador. So there's several articles about um, view that I've written about the oil in the Amazon. So really, thank you again, David, and thank, thank, you, everyone for, thank you everyone for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.